My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I don't know if you've been watching any TV, any Olympics, or pretty much looking through any news feed whatsoever. Uh, but if you have, you are fully aware of just how political everything is. Every single news post is political in nature to the point where a heartbreaking shooting in Florida becomes a topic of gun control. Everywhere you look, there is a political agenda being pushed. Many of these who would so-called be be championing gun control and we need stricter laws because we need to save innocent lives are also the ones who are out propagating that it's okay to murder children in the womb. Hypocrisy? Every single politician, I don't care who they are, I'm sorry if I offend any of you, but every single one talks out of both sides of their mouth. That's the name of the game in politics. It's hypocrisy. I don't care what side of the aisle you align with, there is hypocrisy. And we're smart. We see it, right? Like, we, we may be aligned with people that take stances on things that, that are hot buttons for us, but let's just be honest. Hypocrisy floods our world and especially our political system. And it's because of this and these things that contribute to this society and this culture that we have that is so divided and filled with skeptics. Everyone questions everyone's motive about everything. And this is why I believe, as the church of Jesus Christ, there is no greater time in the history of this nation that we can shine. Through our love, through our unity, through our care for people regardless of their political stance, we can be seen as so different, as so countercultural to the hypocrisy that is flooding our world. And yet, while we can all look at the world around us and say, oh, hypocrites, look at all the hypocrites, hypocrisy is just as prevalent within the church. And Jesus today in our passage is actually going to expose that hypocrisy. Jesus is going to show us how our hearts can be completely hypocritical even in our spiritual practice. Even the things we do that say these are spiritual, we can be hypocrites in doing them. Well, I hope you have, I have your attention. We've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been learning from Jesus as he redefines what it means to be blessed and to to have a blessed life. And he's taught us and shown us what the righteous requirements of God are, namely perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in Matthew chapter 5, no human being can come away from reading Jesus' teaching and say, I'm good. I got this. I have what it takes to meet the righteous requirements of God. If that is the conclusion you draw after reading Matthew chapter 5, you have a different Bible than I have. 
okay? But this is Jesus' exact point. He wants all of us to realize that human righteousness or us gaining a right standing before God can never be achieved. It can only be received. Our right standing before God can never be achieved. It can only be received and received through faith in Jesus Christ who is the only perfect righteous one who lived perfectly in our place, who died sacrificially on the cross for our sin, and who rose from the dead, giving us the hope of eternal life with him forever. This is the good news of the gospel. And if you are in this room and you have claimed to believe this, then you have received God's approval. That approval is not based upon your performance this last week. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Your approval is solely based on what God has done in your place. And if you have received and and taken hold of the gospel, then you are a child of God. He sees you as his child, as dearly loved, completely accepted. There is no more barrier between you and him on the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And if you are in Christ, if your faith is in the gospel, you now have the ability to engage in spiritual things in a way that you can draw close to God, that you can experience a communion with the living God that you once had no chance of experiencing. And you can draw near the throne of grace to hear from your heavenly Father. So with that, let's dive into our passage for today, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start with verse 1. It's kind of Jesus' thesis statement for the rest of this teaching. So here we go. Keep holding on. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus starts off with a word to get our attention. Be aware. Pay attention. Stay alert. To what? That your practices of righteousness, that your spirituality is not for the purpose of being seen by other people. Jesus is revealing just how warped we can be as human beings, right? We can use spiritual things that are meant to draw us close to God for our own personal gain amongst other people. Spirituality can become a platform of popularity or a way to be influential. And Jesus cautions us to not allow our spiritual practice to become self-promotion. And what he's doing in this thesis statement is that he is exposing what our heart truly desires. What does your heart love? Where do you look for satisfaction? What do you look for to feel significant? That's what Jesus is getting at here. Our acts of righteousness are means, they are gifts of grace so that we might know and love and obey God. And Jesus is saying, as he did back in uh, Matthew 5, 6, that we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's hungering and thirsting to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to walk with Jesus. And then we will be satisfied. 
God is the only one who can satisfy your soul. Do you believe that this morning? And yet, we all would say, yes, I believe that, but does our life show that in the things we are looking to and the things we are pursuing to find joy? Well, Jesus is going to give us three quote-unquote religious or righteous practices to elaborate on his thesis. He's going to talk about giving, praying, and fasting. It's important to note that uh, almost every religion in the world embraces these three practices being spiritual and they're admirable. People say, oh yeah, those are good things. To give is good, to pray is good, fasting, yeah, maybe that's outside of my box, but that's good. The, the whole entire world, no matter what religious system you're in, will acknowledge there is some value in this thing, in these things. And I think that's primarily because humans understand that there is more than meets the eye to this life. We instinctively know that there's something deeper. There's something more. That what we see, can't, this can't just be it. We know something else of more significance is behind all of this. But Jesus wants to teach us here how practicing genuine Christianity is fundamentally different from all other religions and how to practice Christianity in a non-hypocritical way. So let's keep reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, so I've been watching the Olympics, and I haven't seen commercials in a while, so uh, this one caught my eye. There's a Tostitos commercial that's floating out there, and uh, you may have seen it. It's with Dak Prescott, quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Um, no cheering for the Cowboys, please. Um, he, is, he is standing... Dak is standing next to this huge red Salvation Army bell. Anyone tracking with me? Anyone seen this? Okay. And they're like, hey, guess what? Tostitos, we're going to donate a portion of the sales with every bag of chips. We're going to donate to your local Salvation Army. So go buy our chips. And as people start purchasing chips, they say, hey, we're going to ring the bell with every order of chips. It's like ding, ding, ding. And then it starts going, ding, 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 ding. And at first, everyone's like, oh, this is so awesome. And then like two seconds later, everybody's, somebody stop that. That is obnoxious. That is annoying. Like, stop ringing the bell. And Jesus says here, don't sound a trumpet when you give. Don't make a big spectacle and draw attention to yourself. Look at the good works I'm doing, society. Friends, fellow Christians, look at how good I am. When you do that, it reveals the motive of your heart. You are seeking to build a reputation for yourself, and you are seeking the praise of other people. And honestly, it can just be annoying, like that commercial. And in contrast, Jesus tells us, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And if you're a human being, you think, well, that is impossible. How in the world can I not know what a, one, one part of my body, not know what another part of my body is doing? That seems absurd. 
Every person in this room gets uh, giving statements at the end of the year from nonprofit organizations or from the church that it's a receipt. Oh, here's how much you gave this year. We're constantly reminded of these things. So how do we give in such a way that, that we don't really know what we are giving? I like how John Stott put it in his commentary. He said this, Not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian giving, there is a sense in which we are not even to tell ourselves. We are not to be self-conscious of our giving, for our self-consciousness will readily deteriorate into self-righteousness. So subtle is the sinfulness of the heart that it is possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from men while dwelling on it in our own minds in a spirit of self-congratulations. We can try to do it, but the point is don't focus on your giving. Don't think about it. Don't elevate it. And I think the only way we can do that is if we genuinely believe that everything we have is a gift from God. The only way you don't even know about your giving is, is if you acknowledge that nothing you own is actually yours. Everything you have is a gift from your maker. Some people might be tempted to think, well, I've worked really hard. I've, I've worked for what I have. Or I've made some really wise investments in my life. And I would say, okay, maybe you have. But who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you a mind to think and a brain to understand how to invest so that you can make money? Every aspect of our being is a gift from God. And you did nothing to earn it and nothing to deserve it. And therefore, as Christians, giving is not an optional spiritual exercise. This, this isn't an optional spiritual practice for us, but what Jesus is telling us is that our motive in giving is what matters most. It's not a matter of if you give, it's a matter of when you give and especially why you give. Underline, circle, why you give. That is the motive. And Jesus uses the word in this passage, hypocrite. And he will, use it every, he will use it three times in talking about giving, praying, and fasting in verses 2, 5, and 16. And this word hypocrite was uh, originally understood and used to describe Greek actors who would wear different masks as they would act out a play or a performance on the stage. And they'd put on their different masks and they'd pretend to play a role. And Jesus is saying, don't be actors. Don't be hypocrites. Don't be like them. Don't pretend that your spirituality is something that it's not. Don't put on a show for an hour a week when you show up to church. Say, oh, God is good. And then walk out the doors and live as if he is not. Here's the reality is, is church is not political. The Christian life is real. God is real. And at the end of the day, God is not fooled by your performance, even if you can fool other people in this room. And we're told by Jesus, if you are an actor, you will receive your reward from men. You'll have a reward. People might think highly of you because uh, you're spiritual or, or give the appearance of being a mature Christian. But that's the, all the reward you will get. But God says we can live for eternal rewards from him, which is what our heart should desire. And what this means is that two people can look almost identical on the outside. 
We can look almost identical in the things we say or the way we uh, attempt to behave, and one person can be doing it for all the right reasons, and one person can be doing it for all the wrong reasons. And it's our motive, Jesus says, that makes the difference. Because Christians give out of an overflow of what they have received. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God gave his son. He gave his best so that we might receive eternal life through faith. And there is no greater gift and no more significant gift with greater eternal ramifications than the gift of salvation through faith. God's grace is truly amazing. Someone in the church this week emailed me an article, and this quote really stirred my soul personally. It says this, If there's really overwhelming gratitude for his overwhelming grace, then there's an overflow in our giving. And when our giving overflows into the lives of those in need, tears of gratitude flow down the cheeks of everyone. I love that. Grace produces gratitude that expresses itself in joyfully giving to others. And if you're here this morning and maybe you have a hard time giving, I would just challenge you to consider if you see God's grace as amazing, If you see salvation as the greatest gift you could possibly ever receive, because it's only when you have that mindset, it's only when your heart is in that place that you can joyfully and selflessly give and acknowledge that everything you have really belongs to God. So again, we give because of what we've received, and when we marvel at grace, we are moved to give. Now we'll go into praying, verse 5. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, we are warned to not be hypocrites who love to draw attention to ourselves through our eloquent public prayers given to impress other people. Prayer in its most simplistic sense is intentional communication with God. That's the most simple definition of prayer. And we pray, as in your notes, to commune with God as our Father. Prayer is a means of communing, of being together. And I'm not going to dive into every nuance and every verse in this section on prayer, but there are, there's two big takeaways that I want you to have uh, in prayer from this passage, and it's this. And this is what makes Christian prayer fundamentally different than every other type of religious praying in the world, that Christian prayer is personal 
and it's familial. It's personal and it's familial. Verse six, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and pray to your father in secret. It's between you and him. And this should cause us to marvel that God has told us to come before him, that any of us through Christ can come before the throne of grace and can sit at the feet of our heavenly father and talk to him. That is amazing. That is completely personal. And that means for the Christian, you don't have to wonder if God hears your prayers or not. When you come before God with your cares and concerns and and the things that are going on in your life, in your heart, he hears you and he cares about you. He wants to hear from you. Some of you may have had this experience, but I have it quite often where one of my daughters will desire to have a private conversation with me. Maybe the rest of the family's around, we're on the living room or something, and, and one of them, hey, daddy, can we go up to my room? I need to talk to you about something. I'm like, sure, honey, let's go up to your room. Let's go talk, right? So there are times when having private conversations with God is completely appropriate, And there are times and there are things that God wants us simply to talk to him about. He doesn't even want us to talk to other people about him. He just says, you come to me. Let's have a little conversation, you and me. I want to hear what's going on with you. And I would argue that our private spiritual lives and our private prayer is probably the most accurate picture of the true state of our relationship with God. And for most of us, we give a hard swallow <laughs> and say, wow, I'm, I'm probably a little less mature than I thought I was in my faith. But here's the thing. Christian prayer is not only personal. It is familial. Jesus refers to God as Father here nine times in our passage. Did you know that God is only referred to Father in the Old Testament 15 times total? And just in our passage today, nine times. You survey all the gospel accounts, and Jesus refers to God as Father over 165 times. So for the original Jewish audience, this would have been just like a revolutionary concept for them. To think, Wait, you're, talking, you're telling me that the almighty God of all creation who parts the waters is my Father? That would have struck them. It would have baffled them. It would have made them stop and think that, wait a second, you're you're telling me the intimate relationship with God is possible and he is our father. When Jesus instructs the church how to pray, he doesn't say, pray like this, my father in heaven. He says, our father in heaven. There is an assumption in the prayer that we pray together as the children of God. And I just, I was thinking about it this week and I thought about just, wow, like God wants us to gather around the fireplace. God wants us to come together as a family around the kitchen table and to have a conversation with him. He wants us to circle up and talk to him together, to seek his counsel, to learn from him, to share our burdens and cares, our dreams and desires, our needs, our wants. And God loves when his children gather around the table. He loves when we come around the fireplace 
to hear from our Father. If you are a child of God, if you are part of his family, you have something to contribute to the family conversation. And what this means for some of us is that we would do well to learn to pray a lot less in public. Some of us love to pray with other people, and we're never shy of words. But then there are other people in our midst who are on the other side of the spectrum who, uh, I'm a little timid to pray in front of others. I don't know, maybe people will critique the words that I say, or I just don't want to embarrass myself by saying something silly. You need to pray more. (laughs) And here's the thing, is we all are coming together by grace through faith. None of us are there because, oh, I can, I can really pray a doozy, this one. God, I'm going to impress you with the eloquence of what I'm about to say. God wants our hearts. And he cares about us drawing together in authenticity and being genuine about the stuff that's going on inside of us, even if it's ugly stuff. And he wants us to come together in unity And then Jesus goes on in in teaching us how to pray, not to give us some ritualistic prayer. How many people have the Lord's Prayer memorized? Could recite it, okay? Okay, that's not the point when Jesus is saying, pray like this, so that you would recite that passage word for word. The point is, is there are principles within this model of prayer that align us to pray with the things that God would say, hey, these are good things to pray for. These are things, these are ways to align your minds and your hearts with who I am and what I've done, what you need, who you are. And so he starts by acknowledging our relationship with God and how awesome he is. Our Father, hallowed be your name, respected, honored, praised as your name. Pray for his will and his purposes to come to fruition. Your kingdom come, your will be done, God. Pray for the daily needs of life and the spiritual needs of forgiveness. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, God, because we've sinned in ways we don't even know we've sinned. And then pray for protection from the temptation of sin and the attacks of the enemy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Principles of prayer, not ritualistic words to recite. And then Jesus goes on and gives this caveat in this uh, section of the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a scary text, if I'm honest. Wow. We will be forgiven by our Father in the way that we forgive. Whoa. And I think Jesus' point here, what he's trying to drill into us is that if you are a forgiven person, you have to be a forgiving person. You have to be. If you've realized the magnitude of your own personal sin and rebellion against God and that he has completely wiped your debt clean, who are you to hold anything against a fellow human being that wrongs you? Now, When other people sin against us, it hurts, okay? It's painful. Our flesh wants to retaliate. We want to get even. 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit can enable us to supernaturally forgive even in the pain. To release people before God. And to acknowledge that, you know what? Every single one of us has to stand before God alone. You answer for you. Your spouse, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, they all answer for themselves. You answer for you. And let me submit one thing to you. Um, uh, if you're finding, uh, as we talk about this, that someone pops in your mind that you know you're holding bitterness, you know you're holding unforgiveness against in your life right now, I would probably argue that your prayers have been hindered. I would probably argue that you've probably had a hard time actually just praying if you are holding bitterness in your heart. And let me just challenge you right now, actually, that if, if God has brought someone to your mind, to your heart, that you have resentment pinned up right now, I want you to release them. Maybe you stop listening to me for the next few minutes and you just need to, to pray before God. I want to challenge you to do that. And let me read Mark eleven twenty five 25 as some motivation to do that. Jesus says this, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Maybe your spiritual life is being dramatically hindered from sweet communion with God because you are not forgiving someone else in your life. If that's you, I just ask you to pray and to release them. All right, so a conclusion on prayer is that Christian prayer is to commune with God as our Father and to care for one another as his children. Let's move on to fasting, the last one here. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I don't think it's going to take a lot to convince you of this, but I, I would argue that fasting is probably the most neglected and misunderstood spiritual discipline in the American church. Anyone agree? Okay. Maybe. So here's the deal. Jesus, in this passage, he doesn't command fasting. He doesn't say, go fast. But he assumes that Christians will fast. And he says this later on in Matthew 9, 14 through 15. He says, uh, or in this conversation with the disciples, he says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What's going on, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as a bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay? What, what we need to acknowledge here is that fasting is a way that we express that Jesus is better than food. That Jesus is better than all of the things in this life. And when we willfully refrain from food and, and feel the effects of that, it reminds us to draw near and draw into the presence of God and to say, God, this is actually what I need. 
This is actually what my soul longs for. This is the only way I can truly be nourished is to come to you. And the disciples here, they didn't fast at this moment in time because they were with Jesus. They were in his presence literally. But now Jesus is ascended to the throne of heaven. And Jesus said, in that day, in those days, they will fast. And if you have have never fasted before, I would just want to encourage you to start by picking a meal this next week. Maybe it's breakfast, maybe it's lunch, maybe it's dinner. And take that time and replace it with reading God's word, maybe with journaling, with praying, just engaging in spiritual activity that draws you close to God. And what it's meant to do, even throughout the day, as as we're told, hey, don't disfigure yourself. Go about your day as normal. Comb your hair, brush your teeth, okay? But what he's saying is, uh, allow the hunger pain throughout the day even to remind you of your need for me. Allow that hunger to be like, man, God, I need you. That's a great way to physically express something spiritual. Now, in all these things, in giving and praying and fasting, the main point that Jesus is making is that in order for our spiritual activity to have spiritual benefit, we must be motivated by a heart that longs to please God and to be in his presence. That's what Jesus is getting at. Don't pretend to be a Christian so that other people around you will think highly of you. Be a Christian. Know your God. Believe the gospel of your salvation and draw near the throne of grace with the pure heart that you've been given by Jesus Christ. Well, through Jesus, we know that we can personally walk with the God of all creation and we can call him Father. We are now able to practice a spirituality in a Christianity that is fundamentally different than any other religious system in the world. And it's all because of what God has done, not because of what we have done. And my prayer for us as a church is that we can be a true Christian community marked by authenticity and not by hypocrisy. That when people see when we gather that they would sense a genuine love and care for one another, a genuine love and care for God. And that all of us would individually long to know God more, but we would collectively seek to know God more as well. And as we do that, that the world around us would see that we are different. And it would cause them to think twice about this Jesus who we claim to follow about this Jesus who we claim is worthy of all our praise and all our adoration. I want to be a part of making Jesus look like he truly is. Do you? I want to be a part of participating in seeing the kingdom of God advance so that as many people as possible will know the love of our God. But none of us can do that alone. We have to do it together. Let's pray.